Podcasting from a small town in the Bible Belt, you're listening to the Environmental Christian Podcast. No, that is not an oxymoron. It's a podcast for environmentalists and Christians and Christian environmentalists and environmental Christians. Just keep listening. It's a podcast for you. Hey, y'all. I've invited some experts from the Center for Religion and the Environment from the University of the South and Sewanee to take over the podcast for the next month or two. This first podcast with Jerry Kappel and Dr. Robin Gottfried is about a theology of beauty. Let's listen. My name is Jerry Kappel, and I have with me today Dr. Robin Gottfried, who is the director of the Center. Today we're going to talk about a concept we call beauty by design. And um, Robin has been working on this for some time, so I just want to begin by asking him, uh, how did he come to this beauty by design idea? Where did that come from? I'm glad you asked that question because I hadn't thought of this for quite a while. When I was uh, teaching economics, I also was teaching the capstone course for the environmental policy major in the college. And I was collaborating in this course with colleagues of mine from the School of Theology. So we had both seminarians and undergraduate seniors in the course, which was a a wonderful mix. And we were looking at sustainability from an interdisciplinary perspective. So uh, we asked Bob Hughes, who was teaching at the School of Theology and Systematic Theology, and had just written a wonderful book on spirituality, to come and speak to us on his perspective. So he came and talked about the theology of beauty, which was something that I had never really thought much about. I didn't even know there was a theology of beauty. And um, it also happens that in my work in, in natural contemplation, the contemplation of nature, one of the things we did was a beauty exercise where we contemplated beauty, but I never had the theological background as as to what that was about. So this really fascinated me when Bob came and spoke. At the same time, I've always been interested in green business and what that means as an economist. So uh, as I was reading in ecological design, I I saw that there were tremendous uh, comparisons or overlaps, if you will, or points of synchrony between the theology of beauty and the idea of ecological design. So that's well, how I got interested in this topic. Yeah, well, very good. Well, <clears throat> I can imagine someone who has just some, come across this phrase, beauty by design, could stumble across a couple of <clears throat> problems with it. Um, one being equating beauty with things that are pretty, um, and design, just thinking in terms of architecture. So perhaps we should um, talk about those words, perhaps starting with beauty. Sure. So just what do you mean by that? Well, beauty, it turns out, is a really interesting concept that has a, a long pedigree. We find it in all three religions of the book, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and also in Greek philosophy. Uh, Plato, particularly, uh, started off a lot of discussion of beauty. And the idea of beauty is that it's something that calls out to you from within something. The burning bush is a wonderful example that scholars often use to talk about beauty. When Moses came and was uh, herding his, brother, his father-in-law's sheep and uh, saw this burning bush, an angel of the Lord called out to Moses from within this burning bush. Well, this was where 
Moses encountered God's presence within something calling out to him. And this is, uh, the, uh, this is also what Plato called beauty. And so beauty is, uh, is a, a, a characteristic of God, the calling out of God from within something, but it's under the surface. It, it doesn't, you don't see it immediately uh, uh, when you're looking at it, but it's something that in a sense happens to you, that calls out to you. So can you help us um, imagine what those qualities might be? So <clears throat> does it have to be aesthetically pleasing? Could, it, could things that we call ugly still be beautiful? Um, what other kinds of qualities make something beautiful? That, that's a very good question. The, um, maybe we can get into, let's get into the design sense um, if we were to try to make something beautiful. But let's, let's make a distinction between what I call beauty and then anti-beauty. Well, I guess anti-beauty is what I, <laughs> more my term. Beauty is a, a general term people use a lot. Some people talk about, for instance, uh, Nazi pageants. Nazi pageants were amazing pageants, highly choreographed, kind of, you know, the Broadway show writ large. They were well done, aesthetic and pleasing, it was just an, an amazing show. But when you look at what they were talking about, they were ugly in, in, in what they were conveying. They were not beautiful. God did not call out to people from within a Nazi pageant, although they were aesthetically very, very pleasing. So beauty should also reflect truth and goodness. And beauty, truth, and goodness are the three, what we call the transcendentals, those characteristics of God which truly belong to God. So God is good, God is beautiful, and God is also truth itself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So that, that's beauty. So Nazi pageants are anti-beauty. They, it's the, if you will, the uh, uh, Satan masquerading as an angel of the light. And that's kind of what a Nazi, Nazi pageant, pageant would be like. That's anti-beauty. Beauty, on the other hand, mud could be beautiful. Once you, but you have to come to understand mud. You have to understand what it is. Or maybe dirt. We don't think of dirt as being beautiful, but when you understand the community of life that lives within that, all, all the bacteria, the fungi, and how they're communicating with one another and, and working together uh, and creating this amazing, rich, fertile medium out of which we get food and trees and oxygen, uh, just all sorts of things. Uh, then all of a sudden we start to appreciate what's there. So beauty also incorporates the idea of understanding the processes uh, that are involved, the, the systems that are involved, and the way things work together, the harmony. And so beauty is a very rich concept, but it, for us to perceive it, sometimes we have to do a little bit of sleuthing ourselves. We have to take time to get to know what we're looking at and so that we can come to appreciate and, and get to the point where we can understand and, and perceive really what is happening there. And then uh, mud could be quite beautiful or dirt could be quite beautiful, although it's not particularly aesthetically pleasing. So there, there's a big difference between aesthetics as we understand it today and beauty. So that uh, implies a lot of things about politics, ecology, um, <clears throat> life in general in many ways. So, so how does it affect us? I mean, why does it matter that we attend uh, and come to to understand this this thing called beauty 
what will it do for us? Well, that, that's a great question. Simon Weil, or W-E-I-L, um, who was a very interesting theologian, although she never explicitly joined the Christian church. Uh, she was a Jewish background, but she uh, believed and acted as a Christian. She said the beauty is the um, primary hook that God uses to get people. So beauty is th uh, that which God uses to call people into relationship with God. And so beauty is really very important. Uh, actions speak louder than words. That what we do, the way we interact with our environment speaks far more than the words that we use. So if, if we really believe in a God that's loving, that's true, that's good, and that's beautiful, then we need to find ways to create as we alter the environment around us, we need to find ways to make that beautiful so that we are proclaiming a gospel that attracts people through the things that we do, through the ways we relate to the world around us. So it really, beauty is in many ways our primary evangelical tool. If we're concerned about bringing people into a relationship with God, then we've got to create a world that uh, wh where we've gone and changed the world, we have to do it in a way that calls people to a relationship with God as opposed to uh, one that repels them. So if you think about, for instance, a, uh, a beautiful sunset or an amazing waterfall, something like that, uh, where, and if you can think of an experience like that where you had a profound sense of God's presence, and most places, uh, many times people say they feel closer to God in nature. So, uh, as opposed to even church. So why is this? Well, I would propose that it's because we experience God's beauty there. There is very little to get in our way of experiencing God there. And God has a way of opening us up uh, in God's creation. But as we change God's creation, it's the question, are we creating anti-beauty? Or are we creating beauty? We incarnate the values that we believe in, that we live by, even more than what we believe in, that we live by, we incarnate them in the works of our hands just as God incarnates God's values in the work of God's hands. So how do we do that? And that, that's the problem. If we create um, uh, strip mine areas where all you see is rubble, if you create uh, creeks that flow out of those where there's nothing but red water and, and, uh, and poison that kills all life, and destroys uh, communities downstream because of the flooding. Have we created beauty or have we created anti-beauty? And I would propose that we're proclaiming a gospel that's totally uh, opposed to the gospel we proclaim in church. And so that's our most powerful way of bringing people to God is through the way that we interact, the world that we create. Do we make it hard for people to, to encounter God or do we make it easier for people to encounter God. So it matters a great deal. I think people can understand <clears throat> the idea, an idea like a beautiful life, that a beautiful life doesn't have to be a life of wealth and privilege. It could just, it's a life appropriately lived or, or um, well lived. Um, so yeah, if we would uh, deepen our definitions of beauty, <clears throat> then the sunset may not need to be dramatic, or the waterfall may not need to be tall. Uh, it could be very simple, or even uh, covered in quite appropriate clouds, <laughs> and still be beautiful because it's right. 
Correct. I suppose. So that deepens our appreciation for all living things and not just the ones that please us. Um, That's right. We come to appreciate the ticks and the green briars and the poison ivy as well as the pain uh, of the, uh, this person down, down the, the uh, uh, hallway in my office building was a real pain. We come to appreciate <laughs> them too. Yeah. So it's, it's learn. And so, of course, this, if we're to act in beautiful ways, we must ourselves become beautiful. We need ourselves to undergo uh, conversion, uh, the ongoing conversion of the road to holiness. And as we do that, then we're more likely to be sensitive to the ways we treat all things, not just humans, but the trees and, and the soil uh, and the world around us. And I guess we could even learn to appreciate a beautiful death. Yes, um, that's right. Death so is part of life. So let's, uh, let's talk about the other word, sure. design. Okay. Um, so that's another one that I think we could use some, some help sure. in understanding its depth and breadth. So what principles can we use uh, that help us understand design? Well, design, you know, when, when we go about changing things or making things or setting up social systems or clubs, whatever it be, we have some sort of plan in mind. This is how I'm going to do this. This is the way I'm going to structure it and the way I'm going to order or arrange things. And that's design. So how do we design things so that they're beautiful? And that's, um, that's, that's our problem. What does beautiful design look like? When, as I started reading an ecological or, or green design, I was amazed to find that the vision that the, these green designers have sounds like a, a, a beauty by design, sounds like a beauty treatise. It uh, sounds like theology. Now, I don't know uh, what their particular spiritual religious background may be, but they're certainly using language that would be the same that I would use. And I was quite struck by the coincidence or coherence of their values with the values that come out of a theology of beauty. So for instance, what sorts of principles might green designers use that we would say, yes, yes, I, I can sign on to that. Uh, one is designing with nature. Uh, if God is in all things and God is concerned about harmony and beautiful processes and things working together in a variety of ways, then we too should do that. In, in God's creation, all things prosper. And the vision of shalom is that uh, all things are living in harmony and prosperity together. This is exactly the sort of goal that uh, ecological designers uh, promote, this working with all people and with all, all creation. All nature should prosper. Uh, that means that you replenish creation. You do all that you can, not to minimize damage, but rather to restore and to nourish. So uh, as economists, we, we like to talk about minimizing costs, but rather ecological designers talk about maximizing wellness for everything, that all things should actually be better off as a result of our intervention than less well off. Uh, we, we also take into account our context, our neighbors. So who are our neighbors? Where the, the rocks, the trees, the bluff, the water, uh, this indigenous community here, or this community that's had long roots in this area? How, how do we uh, engage that community so that what we do reflects where we are? So it's very place-based. So what might be, say, uh, a green building in one area might not be a green building in another area because it, 
it's out of place. I have trouble, for instance, with what we call mushrooms. The mushroom houses we build it now seems to be the thing, some sort of kind of Tudor, I don't know what you call it, an English manor architecture with all these roof lines on it. They stick them in the middle of the field. Well, you know, it, 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 it makes, in rural Tennessee, that makes no sense. And it's just kind of this mushroom that's come out of the ground and you wonder, well, where did this thing come from? It's so odd, as opposed to being the vernacular architecture that's been used in this. So can we take the vernacular language of the building types and, and of the landscape in rural Tennessee, where I live, and can we create a building that fits right in? We say, yes, this belongs here, reflects the people, reflects the landscape, and I feel good, I feel home when I see this building. Uh, waste is a waste. When you think about it, why should we make things or do things where we then have to throw stuff out at the end? Why would I pay money so I can then throw it out? That doesn't make any sense at all. So uh, when we built our house, for instance, there was all sorts of building waste afterwards. Luckily, a uh, very creative uh, poet uh, down the road was building his own home, and he was able to take much of our waste and incorporate it in his house. And it was wonderful when we went to his house and saw all the, all the, the panels and things that we had had here that we would have had to thrown to the dump. He used them. A waste is a waste. So how do we, uh, how do we get rid of waste entirely? We can design actually so that there is no waste. And that's exactly what a mature ecosystem does. It recycles everything. So again, we're mimicking the processes of nature. And this is one of the big aspects of green design. We design with nature and as nature designs itself. We call that biomimicry. And just perhaps one of the last things is that there should be a, a equity involved. We're looking for justice for all people. God is good. Therefore, anything we design should be good. It should be good for all creation, including humans and non-humans. All should prosper. This means justice. It means that uh, anybody being affected by a decision should have some say in that. They should uh, be heard and listened to and honored and feel at the end of the process that they've uh, they have ownership of this too. So even our design processes should include all the stakeholders. And that's not always easy. It requires work. It requires conversation. It's not the quick and dirty way out. And so yes, um, it, there may be some involvement and some time and some money spent, but it pays returns at the end. And everybody feels good about it and you have a project that really works. Right. So. <clears throat> two very large words, beauty and design, and, and it sounds like the call within them is an intentional way of living, actually, that includes um, right things in the right places at the right time in the right amount um, to be loving and righteous and just and whole and life-giving in whatever you do. Would that be a fair overarching <laughs> description of, of what that might be involved? I'd say, I'd say that's a great summary. I think <laughs> you've done a wonderful job. So how might someone um, who wants to pursue this, what could they do to, to increase their, their awareness and their skill set in uh, this thing called Beauty by Design? Well, there are two things, well, several things you could do. Um, one, if you're interested in kind of the concepts more and want to understand more, 
you go to our center website under resources, you'll find a fairly large monograph I wrote in, for the Swanee Theological Review that talks about all this in depth. So you can uh, go there, it's a free download, and, and you can learn more about it that way. Also another thing you could do is uh, look up, say, uh, ecological design on the internet, or green design, and you'll find all sorts of material there where you can learn. Uh, and you also find, uh, if, if you do a search on your area perhaps, um, lead certified buildings, or even there are other certification buildings, uh, building codes that go beyond that for ecological design. Lead is mainly energy efficiency, the others, there are others that go beyond that uh, that are even more ecologically sensitive. Uh, find some homes, office buildings, or um, farms. Agroecology is another example of this. Find uh, farms that are really following agroecological properties. And there are all sorts of uh, interesting grazing regimes out there for livestock, um, different uh, farming techniques for raising food and then plant-based food and go visit one of these farms and ask them why they're doing what they're doing and, and how they go about doing that. And uh, I, I, one of the places that strikes me so much is the Lady Bird uh, Johnson Wildflower Center in Austin, Texas. To me, uh, that is both aesthetically in the sense of revealing beauty calling out to me as well as on the, the things that they've done there to make it far more green, the ecological principles. To me, it's a, a marvelous place to go uh, experience beauty by design. What a great introduction to beauty by design. Thank you, Jerry and Dr. Godfrey. Hey, thanks for listening to the Environmental Christian. If you have a question or comment pertaining to the podcast or Christians in the Environment, please send me an email at environmentalchristian at gmail.com or check out the Environmental Christian on Facebook. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.